The Gospel reading is from John chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, he told him wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How could a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. 
Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Thank you for reading that, Jessica, and um, got your ADD muscles stretched a little bit with that one. It's a kind of a long passage, but it's hard to pull out any section of that and just reflect upon that one thing because it's this very cohesive narrative. And I chose this passage because of the fact that life moves pretty fast, and we move from one thing to the next. And I don't know if about uh, about you, but it seems like I was just thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's 2019. And then Christmas felt like months ago, and even Easter. We're in our fifth Sunday of Easter, but it feels like so long ago. And you're probably sitting here, as I have been uh, at times, thinking about not what's going on right here, but thinking about this week, and what do I have to do, and what's next on my calendar. And so we're trying to slow down and take some time to uh, make Easter more significant for our daily lives, our continuing lives, and not just let it be a holiday or an event that we get dressed up for, but that it's something that, if believed, should filter into our daily lives. And so we've been talking about this idea of resurrection on Thursday or Tuesday or Wednesday, any garden variety day of the week, how is the resurrection that we celebrated on Easter to be significant in our lives? Now, anyone can believe that the resurrection happened. Anyone can believe that. But it's a different thing to believe in, to believe in the resurrection. So how would you know if you did? Well, here we have a very tangible episode something very concrete of a person that seems to begin believing not just that it happened because it hasn't happened yet for him in the chronology, but believing in Jesus in a way that changes the way that he goes about life and it changes his reality, it changes his way of seeing. And this passage is all about seeing, not just the photons of light that enter into our eyeballs, but learning to see through reality as we know it. Now, there's a a deep suspicion that comes up in a lot of our TV and movies, suspicion that reality as we know it is sort of hiding something from us, that there are political, corporate, religious interests that are seeking to protect the sort of real power structures by obfuscation. And these films tell us parables about how that takes place and that we should really be looking behind the scenes to see what is going on. And they're rather cynical depictions, but helpful nonetheless. And we see these types of films all the way back into old Hollywood with Wizard of Oz. They discover that Oz is just run by this little old man behind the curtain. Closer to our day, we've seen the X-Files and JFK, The Matrix, The Truman Show, and even the Lego movie, which depicts this really, really well, that the assumption of these movies and these TV shows is that there is a construction of reality 
that we're meant to see that hides and conceals nefarious actors behind the scene, that the real man is hidden behind the man. Now, it's interesting because when you pull back the curtain, what's behind the curtain is not normally a better reality. Maybe with a director like Terrence Malick, you see him trying to show us the world beyond the world, and it is beautiful, and it is something that should make us joyous. But rarely do we see that, that there's a better reality, that there's a master that's more benevolent than we think. Seeing through, in other words, means seeing a very disturbing truth. Now, John is not the only passage that talks about seeing and the value of seeing. The whole Bible talks about that. Seeing not just through our eyeballs that perceive the physical world, but a a sort of spiritual seeing that helps us and allows us to see beyond what perceived reality might convey. And it's a vision to see a world, to discover a world that's not in the Christian understanding intentionally hidden, but is obscured by what? By our unwillingness to see, by our claim to not be blind, that that's what obscures the world. Now, Jesus here is going along, and you often find the gospel writers just saying, well, Jesus was just walking, and then this happened. And I love just sort of the the earthy, sort of just walking around good news that John and the other gospel writers tell us. And Jesus was going along, and he, what? He saw. He saw a man who was blind. The man didn't see. But Jesus sees him, and he moves toward him. Jesus sees, you see, the world differently than those around them, from the ones who would ignore this man like our friends on the street corners that are in our neighborhood that aren't really seen. They're noticed, but they're not seen. They're not looked at eye to eye. They're not treated with dignity. They're avoided. But there's another way that people avoid, and that was initially the disciples' response. The ones that are supposed to see as Jesus does, but what do they do? They sort of stand back and are diagnosing the situation. Jesus, why is this man blind? I mean, it's a valid question, but it seems that they're content to only ask that. And who was to blame? They want to assign blame to his blindness. Was it him or was it his parents? Jesus, however, doesn't stand far off and assign blame What's most important here isn't the question of theodicy, the problem of evil and responsibility. He doesn't stand far off, but he comes close. He moves towards him, and he heals him of a spiritual curse as well as an economic disability because blindness was seen as a curse for your sin, but also it disenabled you from actually earning a living and being able to provide for your family. Now, if you're like me, it's probably hard to believe, right, that this actually happened, that this is just a story. 
And maybe it's difficult because of sort of our vantage point. We're modern, scientific people, and our assumption is that these people are writing these stories, and they're ancient, they're primitive, they're superstitious. So, of course, they're going to believe something like this. But the reality is is they, they don't. Some of them do, but almost everyone was skeptical that this actually happened. To me, this is the way that this episode plays out, the cadence is a little bit funny. It's almost like a minor Monty Python skit. I'm really glad that Jessica read it with a little bit of a smirk because if you read it over and over and you get the cadence, it's, it's kind of funny. Because he goes to this pool that Jesus tells him to, and he comes back, likely the same day. So the same guy who was begging goes to the pool, and he comes back, and if he's been cured of blindness, you know he's just coming in and he's like whistling and skipping and he's so happy. He can't wait to tell people, look, I can see, I can see you. And they're like, eh, you're probably a different guy than the guy we saw a few hours ago. And this is not Manhattan, right? This, we're not sure exactly where this is, but probably a small village. And so for this guy's perfect doppelganger to come in and to exist in this village and them not be a little bit, you know, wondrous about that is sort of interesting and funny as well. But he comes back and not only looks like him. And he's like, no, seriously, I'm the guy. I'm that dude that was just begging. The man, Jesus, healed me. Well, where is he? Well, he's gone. Jesus has left the building. So you can just imagine this guy just being so ecstatic. He's walking on clouds, and not only does most of the village not believe him, but Jesus just hangs him out to dry, and Jesus has gone on to his next healing. Thanks, Jesus. You healed my sight. Now everyone thinks I'm a little bit crazy. So there's this division in the village. We've got to figure this out. We've got to solve this. Is he a new guy that we've never met before? Is he really healed? Is he lying? What is this? So let's take it to the Pharisees. We're going to take it to take our case to the proper authorities. But you see, when something radically new enters into a community, a system, the worst people to take it to are the so-called proper authorities because they don't want anything new, not radically new, at least. And so what do the Pharisees say? The the proper authorities. This man isn't from God because he, that is Jesus, he doesn't keep Sabbath. (laughs) What? What are you talking about? This guy was blind and now he sees and you're concerned with the fact that it happened on your holy day. What is the holy day for? If it's not for healing people and offering renewal. You must be a heretic, and that Jesus is obviously a heretic. Why? Because if you're right, it threatens our system. And this is the theology of fear. Nothing new, certainly not anything radically new, nothing that alters and throws off the status quo can be admitted. And this is what Galileo found out famously, that we don't live in a a geocentric solar system, but a heliocentric one. And that itself, which seems so obvious to us now, threatened 
the religious, the hermeneutical system that existed. If you're right, it means the whole way that we're reading the Bible is wrong because we know the Bible tells us that the sun rises over the earth. He can't be from God because he doesn't read the Bible like we do. He can't be from God because he broke the rules. But even this recently blind sinner sees the the false logic behind this. If he's not from God, how can he do these things? It seems pretty simple to him. So the Pharisees try a different tactic. Maybe he's just lying. So they ask him again. And now the man is not only saying that he was healed by this man, Jesus, but now he's saying he's a prophet. This sort of inquisition always backfires, doesn't it? It always confirms the suspicions of the people who get in trouble, that there's something you're hiding from us. And so this inquisition actually backfires, and this man becomes a little bit more confident, not only in his healing, but there's something special about Jesus that you're trying to keep me from seeing. He doesn't see everything yet, but he's moving towards the light. The Pharisees, however, moving in the opposite direction, and they're starting to get desperate. So let's talk to his parents. Well, the parents come, and they are petrified, because this isn't just like standing before a denominational board where you might get a slap on the wrist, you might get your credentials pulled, but this can be a matter of life and death. And so they answer only what they know. Well, we know he was blind, we know he's our son, and we know he now sees. Pretty safe so far. But beyond that, we're not going to go there. We're not going to touch it because we don't trust you. You'll have to just ask him. And so they do, again. And a second time, some period of time has gone by, they summon the man back who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. Now, We would hope that a window of opportunity is opening here because the truth, that sounds promising, right? Honesty is always the best policy, and if we just follow after what we believe to know the truth, it's going to always deal us rightly. But while the truth will set you free, sometimes our rules and our system and our tribe, when those things become conflated with the truth, truth becomes weaponized, right? We know because, you see, they have confused their tribe's rules and their hermeneutic with the truth. We know this man is a sinner. This doesn't fit our system, so it must be wrong. Truth is liberating. The truth can be freeing, and it will set you free. But distortions of that truth, no matter how right they sound, can be weaponized. It can be used to create these calcified theological systems that are very hard to live in. They're very hard to breathe in. And those in power don't give up power very easily. But you see, in the Gospels, the claim that we know 
the claim that we see is almost always the sure sign of deafness and of blindness. The gospel works backwards than how we might think about how religion should work. It's almost always the beginning of seeking refuge in a further and deeper darkness. Now, if you have any familiarity with Christianity, you hear about the Pharisees as the the bad guys. They're always the foil of what Jesus is doing right. They're the foil of freedom. But they're not so omnipresent in the Gospels because they're crazy. They wouldn't spend this much time, the Gospel writers, on the Pharisees if they were just loony and we could easily dismiss them. Why are they here? Oops. They're here because they're us. They're here because we should be able to understand. You see, they weren't just making this stuff up. They were the beneficiaries and the students of centuries of tradition. Their mindset is actually a very sophisticated version of a fairly universal one, that if we dig a little bit deep in our lives, we may see they're representative of us. And you probably think, come on, I was tracking with you. I really hate these guys. I don't want those guys to be me. Well, the option is to be the anti-Pharisee. It's to move in the different direction. And if you want to be that, this is the one who's willing to inspect their own way of seeing. This is the one who's willing to be self-critical. The one who is open to light, open to truth, even when it comes from unexpected places, even when it comes from people that you disdain. Ouch. You see, the Pharisees are very sophisticated Bible scholars, but in this story, where does the truth come from? The truth comes from a sinner and a simpleton at that. Because what does this guy say? One thing I know. The Pharisees, they knew a lot of things. This guy says, one thing I know I was blind, and now I see. That's his confession. Karl Barth was a German theologian. If you want to look him up later, it's B-A-R-T-H. Thought by many to be the premier, the best theologian of the 20th century. Some would say even back to the Reformation. He's brilliant. He's very sophisticated. He's incredibly hard to read. I've been to seminary, and I still have a hard time reading him. I like to read about him, not his original stuff. But he was so brilliant, he tended to confound everyone. The liberals thought he was a silly, simpleton conservative. And the conservatives thought, because he's liberal, well, he's not even a Christian. But he lectured all over the world in some of the great cathedrals and some of the great institutions of learning. He led the church resistance to Nazism in Germany, and he wrote massive volumes that are still being deciphered and debated on today. Well, he was lecturing at the University of Chicago in 1962, and after his lecture, there's a Q&A, and some uh, student got up and raised her hand and said, Dr. Bart, could you summarize your whole life's work of theology in a sentence? 
And he says, sure. Yes, I can. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This great mind sums up all of his learning in that one thing. That when I look at the Bible, I see the love of Jesus. I see the light of Jesus, and it's shining on me. It's inviting me in. That's all that this blind man had. Once I was blind, and now I see. That's all I know. Well, the Pharisees, unfortunately, are the stands-in for the human preference for staying in the dark and calling it light, for protecting our power, for the unfounded conceit and overestimation of our own seeing. This blind beggar had a very simplistic faith. He was scorned by those who were steeped in religious practice. The resurrection, friends, when you really see it, when you really believe in it, it lets you see behind the curtain. And sometimes what it lets you see and what it tells you is that behind your sophistication, behind your self-confidence, there's just a little wizard that's pressing buttons and throwing levers. That's your hermeneutic. That's your presupposition. That's how you move in the world. Or maybe Will Farrow, who's gluing the Legos together, which may be an even better metaphor. But the resurrection, when you see it, not only becomes a means of personal rescue, of personal salvation, but it's a summons. It's a summons into the world. Because Jesus not only sees hurting people, but he heals them, and he enlists healed people. Did you catch verse 4? As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. This is Jesus talking. Why? Because night is coming. Any Game of Thrones fans here? I know you won't raise your hand. It's, not, it's church. You can't admit that. And I'm sorry, the current season's not going so well, but hopefully it'll get better. Night is coming. That's why Jesus says we should be about our Father's business. It's got a very Game of Thrones vibe. The forces of evil are gathering, and crucifixion will be the onset of winter, as it were. This time of crucifixion is night, but it's emblematic of something much bigger. It's emblematic of the world's tendency to kill the prophets, to stone the prophets, to reject the healers, to protect the interests of the poor and the lost and the forgotten. We must do the works of him who sent me because that is the reality that we live in. Followers, you see, and if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of InTown or another church. This is for you because it, Jesus comes not just to rescue you, not just to give you salvation, but to summon you into the works that he came to do. You and I, we must see 
the people that Jesus sees. And we must see them how Jesus sees. Because that's what we want from other people. That's what we want from Jesus himself. We must be the ones who ask to do the work of him who sent Jesus to go to be God's healing presence in the lives of those who are hurting and forgotten and suffering and neglected and overlooked. When you believe in the resurrection, not just that it happened, you not only experience this personal, wondrous liberation, but you're enlisted, you see, in a cause. And I hope that if you're here this morning as a part of In Town, that you see part of that in why you showed up, not just to get your religious goods and services, but to be spun up into a group of people, a community that wants to bring God's healing presence in the world. Jesus tells this man as we finish, go to the pool of Siloam, which means the pool of the what? The pool of the scent. Isn't that beautiful? Why does Jesus send him somewhere that he can just do right there? He's got the mud. I don't know why he needs mud either. But why does he send him? It's the pool of the scent. And the nation of Israel was meant to be God's scent community. It's meant to be a microcosm of God's healing presence that invited the poor and the sick and the disenfranchised and the alien and, wait for it, even pagans into their community. But what happened is that religious legalists gained power, and they began to build these high boundaries around their community and hoarded God's grace. And this isn't just Christian criticism looking backwards. The prophets say this over and over. Jesus comes to be the sent one. And he is sent to this blind man. And the blind man says, the one you called, that is Pharisees, the one you called a sinner, healed me. I was blind, but now I see. And what does the church leadership do? How dare, how dare you lecture us? You don't know what you're talking about. And they kick him out. Well, here's the beautiful thing. What does Jesus do to this excommunicated man? He hears around town, that this man has been excommunicated. He's been thrown out of the synagogue. And he goes and finds him. He goes and tracks him down. Jesus heard, verse 35, it's way down on the second or third page, that they had thrown him out. And finding him, do you believe in the Son of Man, Jesus says? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. No ego, no defensiveness, no, well, that's not how I thought the world worked. Jesus said, you have now seen him. He is the one speaking to you. You see, the light is breaking through. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is the light you see that comes to find you while you're in darkness. At first, he was the man Jesus, and then he became a prophet, and then he bows and worships. 
And in a community like this, we assume that it is full of people at all of those stages. And that you don't come here because God expects you to find the light. You come here because God distributes the light. The light comes down. The light is shining in the darkness. And the thing that we hate to admit is that the darkness doesn't lie just out there. The darkness lies in here. The darkness lies in here. We have to keep reflecting upon the light. And those of us who have been Christians for decades, some of us, because we draw near to the light, we see more and more darkness. We should be more and more humble. We should be a church that doesn't bar darkness at the door, but sees our own darkness and therefore moves toward the pain and the suffering of our world. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would make us able to see, and I pray that we would take steps towards you, that we, just like this man, would consider where we are in terms of our understanding of you, our belief in you, and maybe we're here this morning and you're just a man. I pray that we would not feel a sense of rejection or that we don't have a place. Maybe we believe that you're a prophet, you're true, but we're not certain you're good. And I pray that you would step into that scenario as well. And for those of us who would consider ourselves worship worshipers, let us never draw away from the light, but constantly draw towards you. And I pray that we would do so as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.